Father, we're thankful for the chance to see eight people step into the water and obey you today in our baptism service. We thank you, Father, that it can be such a beautiful picture of something so profound, our identification with Jesus through his death and resurrection. But, Father, more than anything, I just praise you that it's uh, what a, a beautiful picture it is of obedience. You know, you ask us to do things because you, you know that they will be the best things for us. And if we would obey, we'd get to see the fruit of that. And you give us these good things because you love us. And we, we know sometimes, Father, we just won't do uh, what you ask us to do in, in different areas of life. And it's because we're, we're stubborn, we're ignorant, or we're distracted, or weighed down by the sin in our life. But whatever it is, Father, I ask, Lord, that we could take something from what we've seen this, this evening with these eight who stepped into the water who obeyed, and perhaps, Father, it would uh, challenge us just a little bit to be more obedient in our own way because it will be to our advantage, Father. You, you've given us um, the Word of God and all that it commands so that we would live according to it and gain all that can be gained out of the life that we live now. And we just want to place, place our trust in you for that and acknowledge you in our, our works, not just in our words. So, Lord, help us to be more Obedient. That's our call as we study scripture, to be doers of this word. And it starts with a heart that wants to obey, Father. So I, we all now ask for that heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're back in chapter 6 of Matthew. It's kind of hard to, to run right from that joyous moment, change, come back in here, and all of a sudden we've got to be back in the word. It's, it's just, a, you know, just to just show you the, the variety of things you see going on in the body of Christ, and it's a wonderful variety. Uh, but now we're back in the Word. We want to be studious. We want to look at the, the text properly. We're at the end of chapter 6. We're at the last of Jesus' four examples in this chapter of how we are to practice our righteousness before men. And he gave us these examples, you remember, because he wants to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in his day. And then at the same time to encourage those of us who are his followers now to live a different way. And his first example, you remember, was giving to the poor. And he said, don't give to be noticed by others. Instead, give in secret. And then in his second example, he said, when you pray, don't pray using repetitious mantra, but instead engage in meaningful conversation with God. Because when you do things to be noticed, that is, when you give to be noticed, when you pray using meaningless repetition to be noticed, Paul says we're being hypocrites. And we're hypocritical because we're pretending to serve God when in reality, we're just serving our own interests. And then last week we looked at the third example in this same line of analysis. It was on fasting. And he said, when you fast, if you exaggerate your suffering so others would witness it and then be admiring of your self-denial in that way, you'd just be a hypocrite again. It's a hypocritical piety. And he says, it will not gain any reward with, with the Father. It will only gain the reward that it obtains here on earth. That is the admiration of those you're trying to impress. Jesus said, if you really want to gain something heavenly and eternal, fast in secret and your father in heaven who sees you will reward you. And as we looked at that topic last week, you remember I actually started with an entirely different topic, that on forgiveness, because Jesus wanted to explain a little more what he meant when he told you in the prayer that we are to ask the Father for the forgiveness of our sins. He was speaking about earthly, temporal forgiveness, asking God to relieve us from the consequences that would come upon us because of our choices and our decisions. 
that he's prepared to spare us from those earthly consequences and maybe even withhold his discipline from us if we would just repent and seek his forgiveness in prayer. Now, here's where we move into tonight. If you remember last week, I quoted from Luke's gospel at a point as a cross-reference to this subject of forgiveness. It's a well-known passage. It's one in which Jesus says that God's willingness to extend forgiveness to us is overflowing. Let me reread it for you. In fact, if you want to turn there just briefly, it might help you. In Luke 6, 36, Jesus says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So Jesus says in that passage, don't judge others. That is, don't hold their sins against them. Rather, pardon them for their mistakes. And if we're willing to do that for others, then Jesus said the Father will be willing to pardon us for our mistakes here and now. In fact, he says in verse 38 of that passage in Luke, he says, they will pour it into your lap until it is running over, so to speak. Now, the it in that statement refers back to what Jesus was talking about in the earlier verse. That is, pardoning. Verse 37. So, the Lord promises to deliver us forgiveness and reconciliation with our adversaries if we would forgive them. And He uses our standard of forgiveness in providing pardon to us for those earthly temporal consequences. If we're stingy in forgiving others, don't expect your Father in Heaven to be terribly generous in forgiveness for your sake when you're here on the earth. We're not talking about eternal things, right? We're talking about earthly temporal forgiveness, not eternal things. But when I mentioned this passage last week, you may remember I also threw out a little comment. I said that there are voices in the church today deceiving believers concerning the true meaning of that passage out of Luke. There are a good number of pastors and teachers who claim that the passage, when it says, it will be given to you, is talking about money. They would claim that Jesus was promising that if you give it, meaning money, then God will respond by giving you back an abundance of wealth. But as we've seen, Jesus was not talking about money. Money wasn't even in the conversation at all. Money's not on the page at all. So in order to come to their conclusion, what those false teachers have to do is ignore the original context of what Jesus was saying, they have to pluck those verses out of context so that you won't notice that the original topic was forgiveness, so that you will think that when they say, give it, that it was money. That's what's going on in the church. If you don't go back to the context, and if you don't check the word for yourself, well, you might get fooled by that kind of thing. Some teachers have taught this error simply because they've been fooled themselves, or because they're not skilled at dividing the word rightly themselves. But there are others who propagate that lie because they are false teachers and they themselves are preoccupied with obtaining money for themselves. And so they willingly manipulate the scriptures to make themselves and their churches wealthier. Paul warned this would happen in 1 Timothy 6, 9. He says, those who want to get rich 
fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, why have I re-emphasized that element of last week's teaching? Well, because it just so happens to lead us directly into the final example that Jesus gives us in this chapter. And that final example of us living out of righteousness is the example of wealth, or we could say it this way, the accumulation of treasure. The accumulation of treasure. And now perhaps you've never considered that the accumulation of treasure is a spiritual issue on a par with praying or fasting, but it is. In fact, it's a central teaching in the New Testament. There is no topic more frequently mentioned in all the New Testament than the topic of accumulating treasure. Now, you might be surprised to know that what the Bible says on this matter generally is that believers are encouraged to seek after treasure, encouraged. But, of course, what the Bible means when it tells us to store up treasure is vastly different than what the world is saying it means and what the world thinks it means. It's also very different from what you're hearing in certain corners in the church. It's just evidence that the church has wandered away so far now that it has actually adopted a kind of pharisaical hypocrisy on this topic, just like in the other ones, where we're actually doing the opposite of what Jesus asked us to do in this chapter. So why don't we look at what Jesus actually says on this topic, beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I like his previous examples. What Jesus is doing in this one is showing you that there is a hypocritical way to accumulate treasure, and then there's the godly way to do it. And he always starts with the wrong way in his examples. In this case, he says the hypocritical manner for storing up treasure is to store it up on earth. Instead, he says, we should be storing it up in heaven. And his reasoning for that is pretty obvious, isn't it? He says that on earth, things don't last. And that should be the the most obvious thing I'm going to say to you all night. Right? Sooner or later, somehow, everything you have, anything you accumulate on earth, is going to be taken away from you. Sooner or later, somehow. Either someone's going to destroy it, like moth or rust, as he says, or someone else is going to deny you use of it, either by stealing it or borrowing it and breaking it or, you know, dropping it. At the very least, though, when you die, you leave it behind to your heirs, those ungrateful kids who just spend it all anyway. But regardless of the cause, sooner or later, you will be without everything you have right now. I want you to think about that for just a second. Sooner or later, everything you own right now, you will be without. One way or another. But the treasure that is in heaven is protected from all of those concerns. A moth, nor rust, nor thieves can get there. They can't destroy a treasure that's reserved for you in heaven. No one can steal it. No one's going to break in and take it. No one's, it's not going to run out of batteries. You know, it's not going to get out of warranty. It's all safe, out of reach of earthly dangers, waiting for you in a perfect future world. 
And that leads you to the second major advantage of treasure that is reserved for you in heaven. Unlike earthly treasure, you don't leave your heavenly treasure behind when you die. You get to keep it and enjoy it into eternity. In fact, you don't even get it until you die. And then it is yours. Now, at this point, I think it would be helpful to clarify what Jesus means when he describes treasure in heaven. In fact, let's just start with the concept of heaven itself. And there's been books written on this, obviously. Most are not that good, in my opinion. They kind of confuse the issue. It's really not that hard to understand. The Bible says that the spirits of those who put their trust in Jesus, that's believers, you and I, that we will be welcomed into a heavenly realm when our body dies. Our body goes to the grave, to dust you came, to dust you will go. But your spirit moves on. Your spirit is eternal. You know, one of the lies of the world is that you are temporary and the world is permanent. You know, for all intents and purposes, it's been here for billions of years. It'll be here for billions of years, right? That's the lie. But you, you are temporary. You know what the Bible says? It's always the opposite of what the world says. The earth is temporary. You are eternal. But the part of you that's eternal is your spirit, not your body. Your body goes into the grave. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, that to be absent the body, which he's referring here to being dead, having your spirit separated from your body, to be absent the body is to be at home with the Lord, meaning to be in his presence. Now we know where he is right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly throne room. So when we die, our spirit is ushered into the presence of the Lord in the heavenly throne room with the Father as it is now. That's where we would go if we died today. That's heaven for us, but only for a short time. Only for a little while. Because God's throne room is not your permanent heavenly home, according to Scripture. God created us, human beings, to live in a physical body. One that would occupy or would inhabit a physical earth. And that's where we eventually go back to. We eventually gain a new body. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that believers one day are resurrected into a new, eternal, glorified, physical body that's intended for life on a physical earth. And Revelation 19 tells us that believers come back to this physical earth with Jesus at his second coming in that new glorified body. So if you die a thousand years ago, well, then you have a little extra time in the heavenly throne room. And if you die a few years before the second coming, you'd only have a short time in the heavenly throne room. But either way, it's not permanent. We're all back here together in a day to come. When that happens, heaven, heaven moves from the heavenly throne room to here on earth because heaven is where Jesus is. Heaven is where Jesus is. And Jesus is coming back. You want to be there with him. In fact, that's why Jesus told the thief on the cross as they were dying together that today you will be with me in paradise. Because paradise is another word for heaven. And what he was saying is, being with me is being in paradise. We're going to go there together. All right, so when we come into the kingdom, and that's what we mean by we say kingdom, we mean this earthly place of Jesus' ruling that follows his second coming. When we come into the kingdom with Jesus, the Bible says the world will be an unimaginably better place than it is now. That's really not that hard to imagine, really. But it will be a world of peace and joy. There will be no war. There will be no conflict, Isaiah tells us. Revelation says our new physical body will not suffer pain or illness or death. We will finally be able to enjoy this physical world in the way Adam was intended to enjoy it in the garden. That's where God is bringing us back. That's what he's doing for us. 
But because this kingdom is a real place with real life, it means every morning in the kingdom, you're going to rise up to spend your day working, playing, eating, worshiping, and just generally enjoying all that God has made for you here on this earth. If your concept of heaven has has never been anything more than angels with wings on clouds and harps, well, no wonder you're not dying to get there. Who would want that? That's, that's not the Bible. That's Hallmark theology. Okay? What the Bible says is, this is not real life. This is a distorted, grotesque form of sinful life that was made so by Adam's choice and the enemy's influence. One day that stuff's been solved for, and this world is finally the way God wanted it to be. That's what we're waiting for. The Bible says that when we get there, though, because it's real, because we live and we need to live properly, we're going to have a home. We're going to have a place to live. We're going to have provision in that world. We're going to eat things, the Bible says. Have you ever worried, am I going to to be able to eat? Am I going to enjoy food? Yes, yes. And you won't get fat. (laughs) You won't have diet. Yeah, there's an amen there. There's an amen there. You won't get diabetes. You won't have heart disease. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, we'll eat properly. But the point is, we will have enjoyable life there. Now, here's where I'm going with all this. The Bible says because of those things, you will need a place to live and your home and what you have with you in that home and what God appoints to you in the world, that's your heavenly reward. That's your provision in the kingdom. And it will depend on your reward. Some portion of this world is allotted to every saint to occupy and enjoy as their heavenly reward. Now, throughout this chapter, Jesus has been making mention of reward. He mentions it a total of seven times. And he says repeatedly, Do not seek for your reward here and now. Seek for the reward that you gain from your Father in heaven. And he's referring to that future allotment in the kingdom. Paul says that our allotment in the kingdom will be awarded to us by Christ at a moment that the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He says, speaking of believers, he says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. And therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now what Paul said there is, first that every Christian would agree that we'd rather be absent this body and to be at home with our Lord in heaven than to remain here a day longer than we have to. I mean, if we understand what's coming, we should all want for that as soon as God appoints it. But since we know that day will come sooner or later, one day we will face him. One day we will be home with him. Therefore, Paul says, we should have as our ambition now, before we're with him even, to be pleasing to him. To do what he wants us to do. And why? Because he says, we know one day we will be held to account for what we did, for how we served him when we're here. Now, I want to be careful. I want to make sure you understand what Paul's saying. Paul says at this moment, the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment each one of us faces to be recompensed. And you could say it this way, to be paid. To be paid by Christ for the deeds we did in this body, whether good or bad. This judgment does not consider sin at all. He's not going to say, oh, you did this sin, you did that. No, sin is not even in the conversation. All your sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. That's been settled. This is not a question of your sin. Your sin has been separated from you as far as the east is from the west as far as God is concerned. When he welcomes you into his presence, there's no conversation about your sin. 
What he's asking is, what have you done to serve me? That's the question. What have you done to serve me? And if you have done things for him that please him, he will pay you for them. Recompensed, paid. And deeds that are, quote, bad in this context, the word really just means worthless. Not bad as in sin. Bad as in not what he wanted. Not what served his interest. For example, did you give to the poor in such a way that you would receive praise from your friends? Well, objectively speaking, giving to the poor is a good thing. But what we've already heard from Jesus is, if you gave it for the purpose of receiving praise from people, Jesus knows that's what your heart was all about. And when you stand in front of him, he's not going to say that was a sin. He's just going to say, I'm sorry, you already got your payment for that one. You got it on earth. Next, let's see what else you did. You see how that works? Whether good or bad. So did we fast to be admired by others? Did we pray in such a way that we just repeated mantra to feel good about ourselves? Or were we actually doing things the way God asked us to do it? That's the question. And now the question for us tonight. Do we store up treasure here where it will burn up in a day to come? Or do we live with eyes for eternity waiting for the reward we receive in the kingdom? Storing up Earthly treasure, Jesus said, that's, that's really a hypocritical way to go about storing things because here's the hypocrisy. If a Christian is to be true to what they believe, then what they're saying by their faith is, I believe that there is a kingdom yet to come and that I am destined to live eternally in that kingdom and that this world is passing away and the new one is eternal. That's what I believe. And I believe that when I get there, I will be serving Christ and he will reward me. And yet... I secretly desire what this world has and I'm willing to put all my time and attention into accumulating it rather than working on what I've said I believe is coming for me. You see the hypocrisy there? That's what the Pharisees did, by the way. They pretended to live an austere life, uh, uh, forsaking the world, they claimed. Why? Because they had the promise of the kingdom waiting for them. And yet, they secretly loved money. The Bible says they were lovers of money. And so they schemed to become rich by abusing their positions in, in religious terms. It's the same thing, by the way, that's happening today with the prosperity preachers. Have you noticed their hypocrisy? Because here's what their message says. Their message says, I'm here to help you become rich. I'm here to help you learn what the Bible says about God's willingness to give you riches. Right? So they seem to be helping you. And in reality, what do they tell you to do? Send me all your money. All right, let me ask you, who gets rich in that scheme? You? No, come on. They tell you to give money to the church, and that's how you're going to become rich. What does that tell you about their heart? Jesus says in verse 21, if you want to know whether someone's heart is full of hypocrisy on this issue, just follow the money. Just follow the money. He says, you can know a person's heart by noting, where are they storing up their treasure? Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And what do you notice, friends, about many of these false prosperity teachers? I'm thinking in particular about some of the more famous guys that you might see on TV. And we're not going to name names, but I can describe them for you. They dress in $5,000 suits. They wear $25,000 watches. They live in million-dollar homes, and they fly around in $50 million private jets. Where's their heart, do you think? Jesus says we would be wise to see them for who they truly are. And then in verse 22, he uses a metaphor. To explain his point, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is clear, then the body is full of light. And conversely, if the eye is bad, then the whole body is full of darkness. And this is, this is what he means. And this is where I get one of my favorite sayings, by the way. That is that we should live with eyes for eternity. 
Because that's essentially what Jesus just said. He's saying your eye, or said another way, your focus in life, your direction in life, dictates where your body goes. That is, where your life will lead. So that if you are focused on the right things, that is, on eternal things, then your entire life will be full of light. That is, you will reflect the truth of God, the glory of God. You will be a testimony to those eternal things. People will see that you live differently and look differently and talk differently and have different priorities. And all of it will project to them what God thinks, not what the world thinks. You'll direct your life in such a way that you are maximizing your eternal reward. You're not particularly concerned with earthly things. So that every decision you make, every priority in your life, it turns on what pleases Christ most now. What does he want me to do now to please him? Now that's idealistic. I'm not saying any of us do it perfectly. But that would be living with eyes for eternity. That would be having a clear eye and the body full of light. But now if your eye is dark, which in this case would mean if your focus is down from heaven and on the earth and what it offers, well, then Jesus says your body is going to be full of darkness. Your life is going to reflect the world, the dark world. You're going to squander your time. You're going to squander your energy. You're going to pursue passing things. And over time, you're going to get weighed down by various lusts and impulses and distractions and wasted pursuits. And Jesus says, you know, if the light in you is darkness, how great then is that darkness? And what he's saying is, if you are a born-again child of God, one who by faith has come to know the glory of Christ, that is, if God has appointed you to be light into this dying, dark world, and yet... Despite that, you choose to run after the darkness of this world. Well, how great then is your darkness? He's saying, how great is that shame? How great is that loss? How great is that tragedy? They should know better. Of all people in the world who should know that we don't chase after the world, it should be the believer, right? Because the world doesn't know any different. Now, of course, our salvation is not at risk. This is not a question of whether you're somehow in or out of God's favor. I mean, you're saved by faith alone. That's done. We're not worried about that. But it's because you know that's done that we're supposed to spend all our time focused on protecting our testimony, on, on preserving that light that we're supposed to project. That's, that is the work of our walk with Christ. And the godly disciple of Christ protects their testimony by recognizing there is an opportunity cost for pursuing the things of this world. The Lord only gives you so much time. Did you know that? I mean, I don't know if you're going to live 100 years or 20 years or whatever, but you only get so much time on this earth, and then it's done, and you only get so much energy, you only get so many resources, and when it's gone, it's gone. And furthermore, you should also recognize that your place in the kingdom is riding on how you spend that time and energy and opportunity while you're here. So a godly disciple recognizes those things and endeavors to spend what they have wisely. Their time, their talent, their treasure. They spend it wisely, living with eyes for eternity because they want to organize all the pursuits of their life to maximize that eternal reward that never goes away. Rather than trying to collect stuff here that burns up. Now, of course, at this point, and I'm sure this is in most people's minds, you're just listening to this and you may be thinking, well, that sounds right. I think that's what Jesus said. But what, what about the fact of life? I mean, I gotta still earn a living. I gotta buy a house. I need a car and all the rest. And friends, that's fine. This is not an all or nothing proposition. You are not more godly because you bought the Camry instead of the Lexus. But you are neither more godly if you live in a hovel and take a vow of poverty. These things don't equate to godliness in and of themselves. That's just another way of being hypocritical. 
What we're talking about is the heart. The question is, is your focus on accumulating those things? Is your focus, is your eye on the accumulation of those things? Or are they just passing through your hands and you use them while you have them? And some of us have been blessed with more resources than others, so some of us can choose a slightly higher standard of living than others, and that's fine. Do you know the reality is that if I took any person in here who's got a full-time job, you would be one of the richest people on the continent if I moved you to Africa. You know that? So while we're busy worrying about who has how much or whatever, forget it. There's always someone richer. There's always someone poorer. That's not the point. The point is, where's your heart? You're not, if you're not focused on accumulating these things, then it won't matter whether you have one or the other. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, instruct those who are rich. And I would argue that that's most of us by worldly standards. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all the things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I love the way he puts that. You know, if you're rich now, you can certainly have the best of this world. But he says, don't be fooled by that. Because the best thing you can obtain in this world with all the money you could possibly have isn't half as good as the simplest thing God's going to provide in the kingdom. That's the point. That's life indeed. This stuff is all nonsense. So in the end, our choice is this, Jesus said. It's between serving two masters. You can serve Christ or you can serve money, but you can't serve both. The Greek word for for wealth he uses here in the text is the word mammon. And it literally just means property. But it has a root word in the Greek, which means that thing in which we place our confidence. And so mammon really communicates a word different than just wealth or property. It really communicates security. Security. So in the matter of wealth, where have you placed your trust for future security? That's the question. Are you trusting in the wealth of this world to provide for your security? And I would think before I preached this sermon, most of us would have thought that was a sensible question and would have answered, well, of course, I've saved. I have my 401k. I've tried to be good stewards. I've, I've prepared for the security of my retirement. Well, what happens after you die? What will be your security then? You see, that's a different question, isn't it? That's not the one your financial planner put in front of you, is it? Are you living with eyes for eternity? Are you placing your trust in the reward God will grant you in the kingdom? Or have you simply stopped at the the doorstep of the grave? In verse 24, Jesus says, These two, Christ or wealth, they're like two slave owners. And you can only serve one, so you must choose. It is literally impossible, he says, to trust in both. But you know what? Some of us sure try to do that, don't we? I mean, I'm guilty of this myself. We say we look forward to the kingdom and that we want to please Christ and that we're looking forward to a good reward. But at the same time, we really do like some of the things this world offers and we really would like to have a few for ourselves. And again, wanting them and even having them isn't in and of itself wrong. The question is, what are you trading to get it? What are you trading to get it? What time did you invest? What, what effort did you invest in making the money to buy the thing, to keep the thing, to insure the thing, to, to, to repair the thing, to protect the thing, to clean the thing? I mean, how much of that took time and effort away from building a kingdom 
on earth now in the sense of recruiting saints into the kingdom through evangelism or discipling future kingdom citizens in the word and in those things earn eternal reward. I mean, it's an opportunity cost, right? Perhaps the Spirit is speaking to you some right now. You're getting a little convicted. And if you are, join the club. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I don't want to be the only one in here that feels guilty on some of this stuff. So maybe some of you are feeling like, ah, maybe I should work fewer hours. Maybe I've just been pushing too hard at work. I need to spend more time with my family. I need to spend more time working in the church or something. Or maybe some of you, it's, it's I need to get out of debt. Man, uh, I am just enslaved by that debt hanging over my head. I, I need to get out of that. I need to stop spending beyond my means or I need to, I need to, to do something. Maybe it means you sell a car. Maybe it means you sell a house you can't afford. Maybe it means you end a hobby that's consuming too much of your time. I don't know what he's telling you, but what I do know is as you contemplate those things, I know what the enemy is probably telling you. What the enemy is telling you is that if you cut back your hours at work, well, the boss might be upset or you may lose that position or promotion or you won't have enough money to pay all those bills. Or if you liquidate your savings to pay off your loans, well, what will happen to your safety net? Or if you sell that expensive house so you can finally live within your budget, how will your kids get into the right school district? Or what will your friends think when you drop out of the country club? Or what will your kids think when you tell them you have to cut back on some of those activities that keep you busy seven nights a week? I mean, I don't know what your life is. I just know I've seen those in my life. I've been through every one of those, at least to some degree. Jesus knew these would be your concerns, and he knew the enemy would provoke them to hold you back from obedience in an area of life that I would submit to you is the single biggest stumbling block in Western Christendom. This pursuit of busyness and materialism. And because he knew you would have this concern, look what he says in verse 25. He says, the Father's got your back. He says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they are? And who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all those things. For your heavenly father knows that you seek these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's an amen for that. It's a longer passage, but look, the central thought is, is simple. It's profound, but it's simple. He just commands us not to give in to our fears, not to worry, and not to let that impede our transition from a life of materialism into a life that's focused on eternity. Because that's what the enemy wants you to do. You can obey the Father, and you can do it confidently, because you can know that he understands your needs, and he's got a plan to cover them somehow. Now, here's the trick. He may not provide for you to the extent that you might prefer in your flesh. I'll be honest with you. You may not get the Lexus. You may have to downgrade to the Camry. 
And, and that's okay if that's what he asks you to do. He may not ask that of you. But the question is, are you willing to let that be a possible response to your obedience? Your address might not be as fancy. Your clothes might not be as fashionable. But friends, in the end, they're going to do the job. You're going to be okay. And then Jesus adds, you know, life is more than food and the body. And, and really what he's saying is, these things that we collect and care so much about, that's not really life. It's not. I mean, it, it doesn't make you happy. And you know this if you've ever chased after things, because as soon as you got one, you got to upgrade. Right? As, as soon as the next iPhone came out, this one's a piece of junk. I don't even know why I bought it. Is that just me? In other words, you don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the purpose of your life is found in the accumulation of these things. And Jesus said it plainly in Luke twelve fifteen. He said, Beware and on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So worrying over what we need in this life is the enemy's greatest weapon, I think, in keeping us from living with eyes for eternity. And here's the irony. The irony is that even when you are working so hard to obtain all these things, in the end, it's still the Lord providing them to you. Did you know that? You know, people who lose their job and they realize, oh, I'm dependent on God for my provision now. No, you always were. You know, you always were. It's just you think you were doing it for yourself. Your security is never going to be found in a job or a savings account or a retirement fund. Those things are merely the appearance of security. God has always been your provider. And by the way, friends, he can remove those things just as surely as he gave them to you. And if you doubt me, read Job. That's why that book exists in part, I think. And therefore, the key is to remember how much the Father in heaven loves and protects his children. And that should trigger our obedience. And then to prove his point, Jesus reminds us of these things like the birds and the flowers and all that. And you get the point, right? He's saying all these things come without them doing anything. I mean, birds find food, right? They live, they, they do their thing. Flowers are always coming up out of the ground every year, usually if it rains. And those things count a lot less to God than you do. A lot less. So what would you conclude about a God under those circumstances? Will he provide less for his most important creation than he provides for these least things in his creation? You know the answer. And yet at times we live like we don't get it. And Jesus says this. He says that is living with little faith. Did you see that? Oh, little faith. And here's why it's little faith. It's operating out of an assumption that if we don't do everything we can to secure our future right now, we might be destitute in the future. Well, that's a lack of faith in God. That's saying that God doesn't care about you. That's saying God would just let you become destitute. And, of course, the presumption is you've been doing what God asked. You've been doing these righteous things. You've been doing things to build the kingdom. And you, you, you did not spend time on the house and the car. And you, you did what he wanted. And you ended up poor in the end. And you didn't have enough money to feed yourself. And God just tricked you. You have little faith. Jesus says that that's like living like Gentiles. And you know what he means by that word, right? We looked at this earlier in the chapter. When he calls you a Gentile in this context... That's saying you're an unbeliever, as opposed to the Jews who knew God at that time. So in verse 32, he says, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, live with these worries. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? I mean, you see it, right? The unbelieving world is chasing after this stuff constantly. It's all they have. Because here's the thing, friends. This life, that's as good as it gets if you're an unbeliever. It's as good as you'll ever have right now. It's all downhill after this. But for believers, this is as bad as it's ever going to be. 
All right, that's such a, a world of difference. So for the unbeliever, it makes some sense that since they lack a relationship with the Father, they depend on their own security, or so they think, and so they're chasing after it. But we, on the other hand, knowing the Father and His, His faithfulness and His Word, why are we living like they do? It's opportunity cost. The opportunities for future reward are forfeited, potentially, when you spend time pursuing things that burn up in the end. Because you only have so much time and so much energy, so much resources. Jesus says, stay focused on today. Don't worry about the what-ifs of tomorrow. By doing that what-ifing and that worrying and that planning and having your spreadsheets and all that stuff, you're prompting in your heart this intentional thinking that says, I can't spend time on church, honey. I haven't hit my goal for our 401k. You see how that works? Now, I'm not saying you don't work. I'm not saying you don't save. You see, it's not all or nothing. It's where your focus is. It's where your focus is. I want to leave you tonight focused on what Jesus says in one last verse, verse 33. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and those other things will be added to you. Now, this is your Christian priority. If you've ever wanted to put, I think, something on, you know, on, 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 framed in your house or embroidered and stuck it up on a wall, this would be the verse in my mind. This is your Christian priority for life. First, seek for Jesus' kingdom, which I think means seeking to serve the interests of the kingdom now. That would be things like evangelism and edifying the body through other means. Just seek for those priorities now, putting your eternal reward ahead of whatever else the world would offer. And then secondly, seek for His righteousness, and that's a different issue. That means working to prove yourself worthy of Christ's trust by demonstrating as much godliness now as possible. Because the Bible says that those who are more faithful in that regard, in the pursuit of sanctification, will gain a higher position of responsibility in the government of the kingdom. So it's seeking for the priorities of the kingdom, and in myself, seeking for righteousness, for godliness, to be a better representative of Christ. That's your priority in life. Put that ahead of everything else. And then what does he say? If... You put time and focus onto those goals. If you pursue them earnestly, yes, you will not have as much time for your job. You will not probably get as many promotions. You will probably not have as big an income. You will probably not be in all of the, the sports that your friends, that your kids' friends are doing right now. You will probably not surf as many web pages as everyone else is able to surf. I mean, whatever it is you do with your time. You will not have enough time for everything you're doing now. I guarantee it. But, Jesus says, if you're focused in that way, the Lord has your back. And he says, the things you didn't have time to pursue, what you eat, where you live, how you clothe yourself, they will be added to you. And notice he uses the word add there, not give. And here's why. First, he reminds us these things are appointed to us by the Father. He adds them. We don't obtain them. We don't earn them. Whatever you possess in life, it's something God assigns to you. So that even when we don't work for them, they're still coming from God. Even when we do work for them, they're coming from God. But then secondly, and I think more importantly, he uses the word added because those possessions come in addition to what you obtained in the kingdom and what you obtained in your own righteousness. Do you see that? That you'll have both eternal reward and you'll have the necessities of life now. You get a provision now and a greater one in the kingdom. It'll be added. And and I love this because what it's saying is you can have both or neither. If you pursue the kingdom and righteousness, that enables eternal reward and God will take care of your needs now in addition to that. Or 
You can get your eyes down on this world, focus on the darkness, pursue it, and you leave all of it behind in the end, and you have lost perhaps the chance to earn eternal reward. You see, it's have all or have none, but just do it in the way God appointed it. Now, I'm not preaching prosperity. I'm not saying you're going to be rich. Not here and now. Nor am I saying it's bad to be rich here and now. I'm saying, where's your heart? What do you care more about? Is it the kingdom or here? Let's all seek for something eternal, please. Because my job is to maximize your eternal reward. And I want to do my job well, because I want one too. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Father, for all that we've seen you doing here tonight. Calling men and women to obey in baptism. Seeing others around them serving in various ways to uh, enable that, to edify them, encouraging them. To see a body gathered to worship and to hear your word. To see your word preached as it is written. So that we might hear the truth, whether we perhaps wanted to or not. And thank you, Father, for the way you, by your grace, encourage us. Reminding us that all our sins have been paid, that our debt is clear, that we do not serve out of a guilt or out of a burden. We serve out of joy, a Lord who has saved us before we knew him. And we thank you, Father, that you've called us now for the opportunity to please you. And you you encourage us to do things that will be to our own benefit by offering reward for those who would obey. What more could a father who loves us do? And I thank you, Father, that you've reminded us of that today. Father, for those hearts in here that have been moved, perhaps to consider changes, whatever they may be, I ask, Father, that you would speak to them in kind ways now, as only you can through your spirit, reassuring them that you have their back, as I said. That whatever they must do to obey you, it will be worth it. And you will care for their needs as they obey you. Don't let the enemy... Tell us the things that stop us in our tracks, Father. Don't let us listen to that and don't let us attend to it. Let us listen to your word tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name for these things. Amen.